Join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we do our Bible study this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're focusing this morning on communion. So let me pick up the text and talk about it. If you need notes for what we're doing in this quick Bible study, raise your hand somewhere in the bulletin. But otherwise, raise your hand and the ushers will hand that to you. I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm starting to read down in verse 17. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not. That you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. And I partly believe it. For there must also be some heresies among you that they which are approved or who are superior in their faith may be made manifest among you. When you come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone takes before his other, the other folk, his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise you the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, at the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, then he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant or new testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if you would judge yourself, or for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry for one another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, and you come not together unto condemnation. And the rest, I'll set it in order when I come and get with you. We're starting this morning this idea about communion, but let me start with this idea. There's a book that comes out, Ancient and Modern Riddles. Let me see if I can give you a riddle and see if you can figure it out. Now, if you know the answer, don't blurt it out. Give everybody about 20 seconds to figure it out. So hang on to it. Let's see. You can work with, your, with one another there at the pew. Feel free to talk amongst yourselves. What's the answer? It gets wet when it is drying. Time's up. What's your answer? It's a towel. Very good. Very good. Here we go. Another, another riddle. The beginning of eternity, the end of time and space. The beginning of every end, the end of every place. Did you figure it out? Some of you look like you're really struggling. I know it's early. It's cloudy. It's the letter E. Yes. Okay. Got it? Here you go. Another one. When you buy three, it costs one dollar. When you buy twelve, it costs two dollars. When you buy 144, it costs three dollars. What is it? A sale? <laughs> no. No. The sermon's not going to be this hard. Okay. <laughs> it's not nails. 
house numbers. Why? Because you didn't come up with it? Is that is it? Don't say it out loud. This comes from a, from a grade school entrance exam. What is the number of the parking space containing the car? Don't say it out loud when you just wait. Just feel bad. It's a grade school entry exam. I'll help you out. I'll help you out. Here we go. Let's flip it upside down. Oh, some of you went to got into grade school. That's how we're saying. Yeah, that one got me too. Let me give you a really hard one. Let me give you a really hard one, okay? How are we supposed to do communion? You do realize that this has been a problem for a lot of churches. The doing communion. In fact, it was a big problem for the church of Corinth that though they had the Apostle Paul help establish their church and teach and get them grounded, that they were doing it wrong and they were doing it in such a bad way that it was costing some of them their very lives. Which, by the way, it tells us that this is so important and so serious to God that God would even chasten his children if they do it wrong. It is an important service that we get right. So how are we supposed to do it? We read in the text that God, that he that, eats and, he that eats and drinks unworthily, eats and drinks, destruction is the word. Destruction to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this many are weak and sickly amongst you, he says to the Corinthians, and some of you even sleep or have died. So this important service, we've got to get right. Of all the services, this is the one that church service that is commanded that we do on a regular basis. And yet it is often done wrong. It is often misunderstood. It is often misinterpreted. So for a few minutes, let's interpret it right, and then let's practice it the way God says. Let's point out that communion done right, it's supposed to be done with regularity. Okay? If we're going to do communion right, we have to do it with regularity. We read in the text that we've already talked about in verse 25, for as oft as you do this. We read in the text that as well, he says, for as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup. We read in the text that the idea here is that we are given the opportunity to determine as a church how often we do it. Now, in the beginning of church age, they did it every time they got together. And then as the history went and spread out, churches chose different times, different, different frequencies. Some do it once a year. Some do it on a weekly basis. Some do it monthly. We just choose to do it monthly. That's, that's because of no other reason than we chose to do it. But we are required to do it frequently regularly. That is to do it as often as we do, but we're supposed to practice it over and over and over again. It is to be a time when we celebrate communion. It is to be for us who are born again believers, it's to be a time where we focus on remembering. We remember. We don't think about, okay, what's going to happen this afternoon when I go shopping? What's going to happen when the eagles meet the Vikings? Not that I'm worried about it. But what's going to happen, you know, in all those different things that we're supposed to put that out of our mind. We're supposed to be remembering something. What are we supposed to be remembering? Well, he says, this do in remembrance of me, for as oft as he drink it in remembrance of me. What's that mean? We're to remember what Christ has done for us. Of the two different ordinances, baptism and communion, this one is supposed to help us to remember that his life, his body was broken for us. 
by the use of bread or the use of crackers, whatever is chosen as the element. That idea of separating and breaking it apart is to remind us this is what Christ did physically. That Christ physically gave himself. We're supposed to, with the juice that we use, we choose to use the grape juice, the fruit of the vine. And he says, when you, when you take that, you're supposed to remember my blood. My blood was shed for you. That I gave and let my body be beaten. I let my blood be shed for you. And he emphasizes again, three times he says in this passage, the idea that we're supposed to think about his physical sufferings, that he says that my, this bread, this cup, you to show the Lord's death, that he says that this is something that's done all about you. And me, my suffering for you. No other, no other time in the church services are we supposed to reflect so much as this service what Christ did. How he was beaten. And some here may not recall, may not remember, may not have heard of those beatings that Christ did. Without, without being coarse, without being gross, let me remind you that when he was arrested late at night, he was taken and he was found to be guilty before he was even tried. And he was taken and then he was beaten. That cat of nine tails that they would beat him with would have glass or metal or stone tied to the end of each one of those nine different leather straps so that when it went around the body, it would dig under the skin so you could flay the man alive. The idea then that he had a crown of thorns, and we're not talking the thorns you have on your rose bush at home. We're talking long thorns. And it was beaten down upon his head. They spat upon him. They beat him. Soldiers who would not get arrested would not get in trouble for beating their prisoner. They would not be hauled into court for taking too violent of an action. They'd be commended for doing it. Brute force put against Christ. To the point that Isaiah says that he was no longer recognizable because he was so beaten physically. Then he's taken after he hauls that cross. By the way, most men died by the whipping that he suffered. He hauls that cross, the beam or the whole thing, all the way to Golgotha through the streets. He collapses multiple times. He has others that are forced to help carry it because he is exhausted, because he is, told why he is losing blood. He is beaten so badly. Then they take him, they put him on the cross. And they pound the nails, the spikes in his wrist area, and they put him on the cross and put his feet there. And they would pound it in such a way that the person could have enough, enough leverage on the cross that they could pull themselves up to get a breath of air and then collapse down and pull themselves up to breathe. And it was designed that most people died from suffocation because they could no longer pull themselves up to get another breath. That's what he suffered for hours on the cross. Because of you, because of me taking our sin to the point that the worst suffering he had was when the father turns away and he cries out in agony and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's at that moment that he became sin for us, that he took my sin, your sin, upon himself and he suffered that separation from the father. While he's going through the physical agony, he suffered hell for you and me for my sin, for your sin. And at the conclusion of those several hours, he calls out with victory, it is finished or paid in full. And then he gave up the ghost. And God the Father accepted his payment for our sin, accepted his sufferings for our sins, proof being that on Easter morning, God resurrected him from the grave, that he was no longer under the penalty of death for our sin. And you do know that the wages of sin is death. 
but Jesus took it for us. So when we come to communion, this is all about thinking about what he did for me physically, how he sacrificed for me, how he suffered for me. In uh, Ireland, they do some research and they found this old metal, precious metal goblet that they called the Gundenstrup cauldron. And on there's pictures of all different types of religious activity. Now this is from around two, three hundred years before Christ was on earth. And one of the paint, one of the, um, not paintings, but one of the uh, etchings on this cup is showing a God holding people above a boiling pot of oil as human sacrifice to satisfy that God's wrath against their disobedience to him. Several years later, they found another cup, the Ardog Chalice. Another beautiful cup, but it was, it was done after Christ had been preached, after he'd come, died, buried, resurrected, and then his message came to Ireland. And then they took and they made another beautiful cup that is a masterpiece. But this one is totally different. It was designed to be used in the communion service to remind people as they would take that cup and they would put it to their lips that no longer are they worshiping a God who demands human sacrifice because he's angry, but rather they're worshiping a God who gave himself for us. Aren't you glad that there's a chalice representing the grace and goodness of God Almighty? That he took our penalty? We're supposed to remember that. We're supposed to, when we do this service this morning, remember Jesus Christ and what he suffered for you and me. But we're also supposed to make this a time of reckoning. In the passage that I read, it says, let a man examine himself. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged by God. So he says, when we come to this service, this is to be a time where we reckon things between us and God. How we look at our lives and what we do is we evaluate. God fully expects that we use the communion service as a time of of examination, a time of introspection, a time of not only looking back but looking inside. And he makes the comment that this is so important to me that when you come together, if you eat and drink of this unworthily, look at verses 28, 29, 30. If you take this in a fashion unworthily, that is, you don't do this with the proper respect, you don't do this with the proper reverence, you don't do this with the proper introspection, the proper reckoning. He says, you some of you are sick. Some of you are, are, are already die, have died because I take this so seriously. This service, you don't mock me. You don't mock my sacrifice. You don't mock what my son has done for you. You don't do this in a flippant fashion. You examine. You make sure you're right with God. You make sure you're right with, with me. In fact, he goes on in this text and he talks about how it is so important that they get right. Now, I read the, the major portion of the text so you get a feel of what's going on. The problem that they had in this church when they were taking communion is that they were doing it as a part of a big meal. They would do that at the closure of their meal. And he's rebuking me. He says, don't even do this meal anymore because you're doing everything so wrong. What was it that they were doing? He talked about earlier in the text, I hear that there are divisions among you. The idea of that schisms, that cutting, that tearing, that, that gossiping, that, that tearing down one another. He says, I hear that it's among you. That some of you, you're quarreling over, and these were, you go through the book. Some were quarreling over which preacher they liked the best. Who was their favorite preacher? And whose group they're behind. Some were quarreling over money issues. And they were hauling people to court, and he says, you've got to stop it. Some were quarreling over who has what gifts. Oh, I have the gift of 
you know, prophecy. I have the gift of tongues. I have the gift of healings. And they were putting down others who didn't have the same gifts as them. And they were all about showing off their gifts. And he says, this is wrong. This is wrong. When you come to communion, don't you realize that you're supposed to come without conflicts with one another? You're supposed to come with an attitude of unity. But you're coming with an attitude of selfishness. We already read it. Verses 20 and 22 through 22. He says, when you get together, there are some who are hungry and you're not sharing. There are some who aren't waiting for the others and you're not, you're not serving them. You're not letting the poor even have any food. It was all about selfishly. Serving yourselves, he says, when you got together for this love feast, this meal, there was no courtesy. There wasn't waiting one upon another. There wasn't sharing with those who didn't have so much. There was the idea of some were eating to their fill and others were just watching, going in, in hunger, hoping that they'd get a few crumbs. Some were having such a good time, they were even getting drunk to the point that others had nothing. They were separating into these little cliques within the body and he says, this is wrong. This is wrong that there's such schisms, that there's such selfishness within the body of Christ. And he rebukes them for it. In fact, Paul is very pointed about it. He says, you have a love feast and there's no love. This is just so contrary. And it offended him. It offended him to the point that he says, I praise you not twice. He says that you come together and you're not doing something that's good. You're doing something that's worse. And then God gets in on the act. And God says, when you do that, you're despising the church, the brothers in Christ. God says that you're guilty of the body and blood of Christ which was shed to unite us together and you're causing division. You're tearing apart what I died to put together. This was serious stuff to God Almighty. This was stuff that he says that by not having unity, by not having, having a graciousness to one another, he said, this is going to cause me to take some disciplinary action. So when churches get together and they do a communion service and somebody sits there and looks at what other people are wearing and tears them down, that's wrong. When others come for communion and they want to be lauded and they, they want to procession up to the front and be noticed by everybody so that they're noted for themselves, that's wrong. Communion is to be a service where we exercise humility and compassion and grace one towards another. Where we're not guilty of gossip, we're not guilty of tearing down, we're not guilty of believing the worst about others. We're not guilty of selfishness, but rather we are kind and considerate and wanting to minister one to another. That's what communion is about. In other words, you and I have to say, am I at the point of where I'm at this week, promoting unity within this body? Am I one that is encouraging or discouraging other believers? Am I one who is showing compassion or clickishness? That's an important element here in this passage. And he says, okay, we've got to stop that. We've got to stop that. You've got to be right with one another. You've got to be right with God. You don't come and take of these elements when you don't know that your sins are forgiven by Jesus Christ. Well, you don't come and say, well, I'm just going to go through the motions. No, you need to have confession as part of this reckoning. As part of that, that meditation beforehand to say, you know, Christ, forgive me. Am I right with others? Am I right with you, Father? I don't want to be mocking your, your sacrifice. I don't want to be harboring some hidden sin that cost you your life and then pretend that it's not there. That's what this communion service is about, a time of reckoning. It's a time of you and I refocusing our attention. 
refocusing in the sense that as we, we think about it, I mean, there's people. There's these popular people in American cultures. There's the Tom Brady's, who in an interview several years ago with 60 Minutes was interviewed and was asked about, you know, why do you keep on playing after you've won three of these Super Bowls already at that time? It's interesting what he says and gives you an insight into the mindset of some people that are iconic in our culture, but they're still empty. He made the, he, the comment when they said, why do you keep on playing if you've got three soap? I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think there's got to be more than this. It's not all that it's cracked up to be. The interview went off. Mr. Croft asked, what do you think is the real answer for fulfillment and joy? His response was not three more Super Bowl rings. His response was, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. He is in our culture on the top of of his career, of his profession, and yet there's an emptiness. I can tell him what the answer is. It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the answer for peace. My peace I give you. My joy I leave with you. You want real peace and contentment and fulfillment? He says, focus on me. And so he says, when you come together for a communion service, reflect on me. Come and refocus on me. Come together and think about me. It is so easy during the week to think about job, to think about buildings, to think about gardens, to think about tree trimming, to think about your know, sports, to think about whatever we think about. But he says, I want you to take time in this service to think about me, who I am, what I did, what I'm doing for you. Think about me. You know, we have these times. We have these special days where we say, okay, it's the birthday, and we're going to focus on that individual. And that's their day. We have these times where we say, okay, it's mom's day. Let's really focus and think about mom. We have the days about dads where one dad wrote, he says, I can guarantee on one day that I get obedience on that one day of the year. Oh, we have in our culture, we have these times where it's your day, ladies. This is your special day, and appropriately so. And then, then later, as time goes by, there's the anniversaries where it's our day. We even, have, we even have this. We have Boss's Day, and for our staff, it's October 16th, guys. Okay, just to remind you. <laughs> we set aside days like this. That we say we want to we make sure that we acknowledge the person. Do you realize that what God has done... God said that when you have Communion Sunday, this is my day. You think about me. You think about what I did. You think about who I am. You think about me. Put aside all the other stuff and refocus on Jesus Christ. This is a time, on, a time to be reflecting on what's ahead. When we do this service, we're supposed to not only look inside, we're not only supposed to look back, we're supposed to look forward. Do you remember when he's doing the communion service for his odd? He says, as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. So we keep on doing it until he comes. But that time when he instituted it, we go all the way back to Matthew. He says, drink the cup, for this is the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for the remission of sins. Then he makes the comment, I will not henceforth drink this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Communion is basically Jesus saying, this is, a, this is the last meal I'm having with you, but I want you to do this 
And every time you do it, it's kind of like the little bit of a sampling of what's ahead. What's ahead. It's kind of like the hors d'oeuvres. It's, it's promising there's more coming. And you remind yourselves when you do this that I am going to do this meal with you when we get into the kingdom. When we get into heaven, I will partake with you face to face across the table again. And this is the reminder that I'm going to do, have this meal with you one time in the future again. So we're supposed to be reflecting. This is God's way of thinking about what's ahead. What's he got in store for us? What's he got as far as that big meal that we get with him, the marriage of the lamb that's talked about in Revelation? He says this is a, this is a little bit of an inkling of what that's going to be like. And so you remember that. You remember what it's going to be like and what I've promised you. I promised you when you take these elements this morning that you'll be in heaven with me one day. A real place. A place that you will have new bodies. You won't have the aches and the pains. You won't have the aging. You will be resurrected, renewed in your body. You will be with me where you won't have any more struggles with the, with the atmosphere around you, with the, with the climate around you. There won't be any more hurricanes threatening you. There won't be any earthquakes. There won't be any of the tragedies. We will have normal weather. He says, remember this when you get together. This is what this is about, to think about heaven. That when we get there, we will be renewed. That it'll be a perfect environment. No crimes, no, no conflicts, no wars. There will be perfect provision, harmony between animals. There won't be any politicians. That is, no sinners there. There will be a perfect environment. I shouldn't say that. That's, they're, not, they're not all corrupt. We will be in a perfect environment one day. And to top it all off, there will be a reunion with all those loved ones that you're missing. The kids that some of you have buried. The spouses that some of you had said goodbye to. The parents, the brothers and sisters. This is a reminder that we're going to eat with them. That they are alive and well. And one day we're going to be together forever. And no more goodbyes. That's what communion is about. Communion is to remember, to reckon, to reflect on what's ahead. It's a time where we think about, boy, oh boy, we wish it were soon. Passover, Jewish Passover, that it's become traditional, that oftentimes, how do they end it? As they gather around their family together to celebrate the Passover, that Jewish holiday, oftentimes they conclude with this thought, next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem, there's a small church in Wisconsin that picked up on that little traditional phrase. And they close their communion service every time with the idea of there's hope, there's something much better. We know the promise of God. And they say it this way, next time with Christ. Just to remind one another, this is what it's telling us. We have a home in heaven. He's coming back. That brings us to this thought. This is to be the time of rejoicing. This is to be a time of rejoicing. We're saddened by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but he says you do show, you do proclaim the ideas with enthusiasm, the Lord's death until he comes. Let me remind you that when the Lord put together the communion service, in 1 Corinthians he talks about he had given thanks, he broke the bread. In Matthew, recording it says he took the cup and gave thanks. Both elements, he's giving a thanksgiving prayer. What struck me 
is the beginning of the paragraph in Matthew chapter, 11, uh, Matthew chapter 26. He begins the paragraph by saying they were exceedingly sorrowful when they started the communion service. Brokenhearted. Because Jesus had told them, I'm leaving. Jesus had told them, one of you is going to betray me. Jesus had told them, you're going to suffer persecutions and conflicts in this world. Jesus has said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And he goes on through that whole discourse, and he wraps it up with giving thanks, giving thanks. Do you realize what that means about communion? Communion is to be a service that what happens that we are supposed to rejoice even in difficult moments. This is to be our time of rejoicing. This is to be when we pause and you've got problems, you've got difficulties, you've got conflicts with, with situations at work or in the neighborhood or with relatives, you've got issues going on health-wise or financially or, or in relationships, and, and life's troubled for some of you. This is to be the time that you pause and you say, okay, let me take stock. As I reflect on what Christ has done, as I reflect on Jesus, as I look forward, this is to be a time where I can rejoice and find joy in the middle of all the difficulties that I have when I go back out these doors. This is a time of rejoicing. This is a time of celebrating. These two individuals, Jermaine Washington and Michelle Stevens, they had grown up next door to each other, and they were friends. Not a boyfriend, girlfriend. They were just close friends. They lost track of each other. They both got married, and they ended up finding one another in the town that, that uh, they came across one another years later, and they renewed their friendship. Their spouses got along, and so they were having uh, uh, some, some renewal of that, and they found out within a short period of time that Michelle was having problems. She relayed to the, to the Washington family that she was really struggling because she needed a kidney. She was looking for a donor for the last 11 months, and she was physically becoming exhausted and worn down to the point that they were saying that if something doesn't happen soon, you'll, you'll die. Well, Jermaine decided that he would find out if his, his lifelong friend, if they were compatible, and they were, he donated one of his kidneys. In response to that, after she healed, these families get together a couple times a month, and they have what's called a gratitude lunch. A time of appreciation. A time of saying thank you. Otherwise, there would be no lunch. You know, we need to have gratitude lunches. And I think that's what God has designed this to be. That we reflect and say, he gave so much for me. That we're supposed to have this gratitude, rejoicing spirit. That we give him praise, we give him thanks for what he's done, what he's going to do for us. That's communion. That's what we're supposed to be doing this morning.